All right, well, good morning and happy St. Patrick's Day. Got my tie on, got some green on. All of you, I will be pinching. We will have a line out there. Some of you, Tony down here, got a couple of you as a lookout. Yep, Ernie's got plenty of green on, so good to go with that this morning. Since it is St. Patrick's Day, let me give you a couple of tidbits about St. Patrick. First of all, he's not actually a saint. He's never been canonized by the Catholic Church. He's a saint in the sense that Jesus, that Jesus, good grief, is a saint in the sense that Elvis is the king of rock, right? It's just a, they just throw it on him, all right? He's a patron saint of Ireland, but he's never been, excuse me, actually bona fide, like canonized by a pope. Secondly, he's not Irish. Patrick is not Irish, all right? I don't know if you knew that, but he's not. He's actually um, part of the, he was Roman, but he he was a Brit, so he was from Britain, the reason he's associated with Ireland is because around the year 400, when he was 16 years old, he was kidnapped by Celtic pirates who took him to Ireland and sold him into slavery. And when he got there, he was not a Christian at the time. Now, he knew the gospel, all right? His grandfather was a pastor. His dad was a deacon. He knew the gospel. He knew that, that you know, we are all, everybody is a sinner and that there's no way we can save ourselves He knew that God had sent Jesus into the world to live a perfect life that no one has and to die a death that we've all been condemned to die and to rise again to give us a gift that no one could, you know, earn forgiveness of sin. And so sometime during those six years in slavery in Ireland, he repented and believed the gospel. He trusted in Christ and became a Christian. And he began praying over a hundred prayers a day and then a hundred more at night. And finally, after a dream, the dream spoke to him, it said to, to flee, to run. And so he did. And he made his way all the way across Ireland and found transportation from Ireland to Britain, back to his homeland. And when he got there, he went to seminary. Eventually, he was commissioned to be a pastor. And after another dream, he felt the Lord calling him to go back to Ireland, to his captors, to the pagan Celts, and be a missionary to them. And so that's what he did. He went back and he lived there for the rest of his life till he died at the age of 77. And we celebrate today, he's recognized as the day of his death. And while he was there, he led thousands upon thousands upon thousands of individuals to Christ and started a, missionary, started a multiplication movement. He trained over a thousand pastors. He planted over 700 churches. All of that's true. What's not true is that he drove all the snakes out of Ireland. <laughs> and there weren't ever any snakes in Ireland. But to kind of segue, you know, to what we're going to be talking about this morning... There's a difference between what a lot of people commonly know about St. Patrick and the actual truth. And the same could be said about Solomon in a lot of ways. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 3. The page number will be up here. Chapter 3 and chapter 4. But a lot of times when we think of Solomon, like if if you're a non-Christian or someone who's newer to Christianity, just beginning to read the Bible or something, when you just hear the name Solomon, you might first think about like his, his mines, right? Solomon's mines and Solomon's treasure and Solomon's gold and all the legends that surround that. Now, Solomon was ridiculously rich, ridiculously rich. And so he's able to chase down everything he ever wanted he could have. He was ridiculously rich. But it's just legends about his 
treasures, about his mines, about his gold. There's tons of movies and books you can read about that. One crazy one called Congo, made in the 90s, with these gray gorillas. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Probably not. Is that right? But if you're a Christian, or maybe just someone who's familiar with the Bible, when you hear the name Solomon, the first thing that might pop into your mind is wisdom, right? Proverbs. He he wrote Proverbs. He's the wisest person to ever live. That's what he's known for. God gave him great wisdom. We're going to be looking at some of that this morning. Now, as you, if you know the rest of the story of Solomon, and in the, we'll be seeing this in the chapters and weeks to come, Solomon will eventually turn from that wisdom, pulled away by his pride and his lust. He will outrageously and sinfully marry, no kidding, 700 wives, 300 concubines, and then adopt and worship all of their gods. They're not Israelites. And so he goes rogue, he apostatizes. But even as we talked about last week, if this is a sketch of his life, it seems that right at the end he comes back. Right at the, book of, right at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, which some of you are studying right now, it, it, those are kind of like his memoirs. And he's writing, I tried this, and I tried this, and all of this has no meaning in life. The only thing that there's meaning that can be found is getting beyond the sun. Things under the sun, there's no meaning there. You've got to get beyond the sun. And life's all about God. And so he seems to come back. But where we're at this morning, as we look at 1 Kings chapter 3 and chapter 4, we're right there at the beginning where he starts really well. But what we're going to see is that even in that good start, there's some warning signs already present. And so through that lens, I want us to look at that. And bring application to our lives. To learn from the good and the bad. From the wisdom and the folly of Solomon. And specifically from these chapters, I think there are three lessons we need to learn. Number one, you can go ahead and fill them in if you want. Number one, beware of your divided heart. Beware of your divided heart. That's where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning. Number two, seek God's wisdom. Seek God's wisdom. And then number three, we'll hit this really quick, not give actually as much attention as we should to it. I'm doing that for you Tennessee fans. Amen. <laughs> Vandy's like, preach long. <laughs> you, number three, you, number three, walk in God's wisdom. Walk in God's wisdom. So beware of your divided heart. Seek God's wisdom. Walk in God's wisdom. And so chapter three. Verse 1, read along with me. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Those are like three major building projects of his life. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You've shown great 
and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child. Not literally, it's figuratively. I mean, he, probably, he already had a son by this point. I do not know how to come out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen. A great people. Too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. That I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this. And have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor. So that no other king shall compare to you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings. And made a feast for all his servants. And then the rest of the chapter goes on to detail that this wisdom was in fact really, really given to him. But when you read this, like I said, Solomon starts off really, really well. I mean, verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord. You can look all throughout the rest of the scripture and no one is described like that in all the Bible. There are other people who say, I love the Lord, but there is no one who's described with these words that he loved the Lord. That's some high praise. And then it says he walked in the statutes of David, his father. All right, these things are quick things to read, but they are weighty. I mean, if there was such a thing, Solomon would be winning Church Member of the Year Award, right? He is a godly guy. He'd be winning Christian of the Year Award. He is just an absolute amazing follower of the one true God, the God of Israel. And he loves him. And so don't miss these major compliments. Solomon could not be complimented higher. And yet... There are already several warning signs that show that Solomon's love was not wholehearted, but that his heart was divided. First of all, verse 1 says that he had married a non-worshipper of the God of Israel. He had married a non-worshipper of the one true God of Yahweh. And friends, the Bible is clear This is not an issue of ethnicity, but of spirituality that he married an Egyptian. The Bible clearly, 
clearly stands and, and, and supports the union of two people of different ethnicities. But it forbids the marriage of a believer to an unbeliever. And it does this both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so it's hardly surprising that marrying outside the faith eventually led Solomon into idolatry. The very king who it was once said of that he loved the Lord later will be said of that he loved many foreign wives. And we'll get to that in due time in the chapters ahead. But for today, those of you who are not married, learn from Solomon's mistake and just flat out obey the Bible. Do not marry or date a non-believer. Second thing that shows Solomon's divided heart is the unholy alliance he strikes with Egypt. So he's sinning, you know, by marrying outside of the faith, but he's also sinning by trying to find security in a strong political power instead of God. That the answers to the greatest needs of his life are political not spiritual. And so what about you and I? Is your hope, as we just sang, built nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? Or is it built on the back of a donkey or an elephant with a little Jesus tacked on for good measure? Is your heart divided? I mean, consider seriously. And do you care more about politics than you do about the fact that people are going to hell? That Jesus is not worshipped by billions of people? What would your Facebook, Twitter, and reading list say about you? What do you care about more? Don't be like Solomon. A third warning sign of his divided heart was his use of money. Verse 1 talks about how he built, you know, a temple for the Lord. It also talks about how he built a palace for himself. And as we'll come to find out, he spends way more time and way more money on his own house than he does on the house of the Lord. Again, what about you and I? Does money pull us away from worship of the one true God? Do you trust God with not your money, but His money? Because it's all His. He just asks you to steward it. So are you a good steward or a bad steward? What does your record of transactions say? What does your year in tax deductions say? As I've said before, giving is not everything, but it is something. It's something commanded in Scripture. And so live generously. Live generously. Warning signs, warning signs, warning signs of divided hearts. Fourth one, and this one's really clear in the text, we see the warning sign that he worshipped wrongly. Look at verse 3 again. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only, like exception now, he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. This only signifies some sort of exception to the praise that's been dished out. So apparently the, the king and the people were worshiping the one true God, but they were doing so at the high places. These are places that have been dedicated to pagan gods. 
And so they're kind of co-opting them for worship. And somebody's like, yeah, Joe, but that's not... And they're, they're worshiping God. The problem is God told them not to do that. Not all worship is worship as God describes. There's this big thing from Reformation, or Reformation times called the regulative principle. We don't practice the regulative principle here, but we are close to that. What that talks about is only what is prescribed in Scripture is the way you can worship. The problem is here is they were directly in violation of what God had said. Somebody's like, but Joe, right after this, verse 4, it talks about how he went to Gibeon. And that was the great high place and God appeared to him. Isn't that proof that that's like a fine thing to do? Friends, the Lord's appearance to Solomon at Gibeon says far more about his divine grace than Solomon's obedience. God is gracious to us in the midst of our nonsense. He is. That's something we can love and thank him for. But it's like Paul says, do we pursue that just so grace can abound? By no means. What he was doing here had been explicitly condemned in Deuteronomy 12. They were to destroy the high places of pagan idolatry and never worship there. Instead, they were to worship at the tabernacle, at the Ark of the Covenant, which is where he does go and properly worship after he wakes up from this dream. And so while it is true that Solomon was a king after David's heart and that he loved the Lord, it is also true that he had a wandering heart that loved other things. In other words, Solomon was a lot like me and you. We love the Lord. He loved the Lord. But he also loved a bunch of other things as much as, if not more than, he loved the Lord. And that's us. We face this same struggle. And so, number one in your notes, you need to beware of your divided heart. We've got to beware of our divided hearts. Because they are, they are very much divided. And we will very often let things of this world crowd God out. I mean, it's like the words of the song, Come Thy Fount. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Friends, that's me. And that's you. As the great reformer Martin Luther, also namesake of my dog, <laughs> as Luther used to commonly say, Christians are simultaneously, at the same time, justified, made righteous, and are sinners. Simul justus et peccator, simultaneously justified and sinners. And so Solomon's divided heart here, again, highlights God's grace in his life and in our lives as well. Because on the, on the one hand, like he had been made righteous based upon what God did, not based upon what he did. Our righteousness not built on us. It's built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's not ours. And so God still stood ready to bless Solomon, as we're going to see, like a pitcher tilted towards pouring out. That's God. He's tilted towards pouring out His blessing on us, if we would just ask. Because He's kind and He's gracious. But at the same time, these verses highlight also the need for us to kill our little pet sins. 
before they kill us. Paul said Colossians 3, put them to death. Okay, don't manage them. Don't try to tame them. Don't try to curb them a little bit. He says murder them. Put them to death. And so it's kind of like this. Physically, I try to be a healthy God. All right? And I get that my genetics plays into some of that, but I also do some work. Not anything crazy, all right? I am an ice cream aficionado, right? And tonight I will be celebrating St. Patty's with a bowl of me lucky charms. <laughs> my wife is sweet and she bought me a box, so I am ready. But on the whole, I try to eat fairly well. I try to get sleep, try to manage stress. And I try to do some moderate weight training and running. And so... Just several little things, but done over a long time and make a difference, right? Now, if you flip that around a little bit, let's still talk about little things, but not eating fairly well, not exercising a little bit, not getting sleep, not managing stress, not working out. Okay, again, all of these are little bitty things, but done over the long haul, what happens? Your health deteriorates which opens you up to an increased possibility. Again, cancer comes for anybody, right? Things come for anybody. But open you up to an increased possibility of greater ailments. That's like the things that we might label little sins that we don't really need to worry about. They're not that big of a deal. But if you allow them to go on and on and on over the long haul, they will continue to make you more and more unhealthy and open you up to bigger and bigger sins. So sticking with Colossians 3, I was talking about, you know, put, to, put your sin to death. It talks about your anger grows and your wrath grows and your malice grows, your slander grows, your obscene talk grows, and you are ripe for even bigger sins. No one sets out to have like an affair, right? Little by 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 little. Slow fade. Boom. And so the reason we have got to not just control, not just manage, not just tame, but put to death those things that divide our heart is because letting them go on in our lives opens up to this increased possibility of greater sins that will further insult God. And listen to me, also cause collateral damage to those around you. And Solomon is case in point here. The fallout of his sin destroys the kingdom. It will split and splinter because of him. And so friends, don't allow your false loves to remain. Make war on them. Put them to death. And love God with all your mind and soul and strength. All your heart. Beware of a divided heart. And not just that you might have it, that you do have it. I have it. We all have it. Simulistus et peccator. That's number one. But now let's turn to some positive examples from Solomon. And the first one is his approach to God. And then what he asks for. And so let's look at verses 5 through 9 again. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You've shown great mercy and steadfast love to your servant David, my father. 
because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and had given him a son to sit on his throne. And now, O oh Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. So notice Solomon's reverential approach to God. His prayer was based upon a Proper knowledge of the greatness of God, who he is, what he's done, what he's promised. And so his prayer shows us, serves almost as a model for how we should approach God by acknowledging that God is God and that he is our God and that he's at work in our lives and that he has kept his promises of salvation. And so already right here, Solomon is demonstrating some wisdom. Because as he writes later, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so his prayer was based upon a proper knowledge of God. And at the same time, it was also based upon a proper knowledge of himself. He sees that he's not competent for this. That he's inexperienced. That he's overwhelmed. That he's to lead God's people and he has no clue. And so he cries out for that. Just as we cry out for stuff. And friends, here is the good news. The Lord is happy to answer our prayers when we call on him. Look at verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you've asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I will give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has ever been before and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So friends, even though we are not kings, right? Even though we do not have the same level of kingdom responsibility as Solomon did, is not God, is it not the the God to whom we come, the same God who lavishes generosity here? Is this not the same God who meets us in James 1.5 where the apostle urges, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. Literally, he's a very giving God without reproach and it will be given him. Is God not the same God that we see here in 1 Kings 3 who tells Solomon to ask? And then in verse 13, in effect says, and all these other things shall be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6. Is this not the God also of Matthew seven eleven? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Friends, God is generous. 
He is gracious. Like a pitcher tilted towards pouring out blessing is your God. My God. Our God. This is God. And so let His kindness lure you to pray. And ask of Him. And to know Him. And specifically what Solomon prays here, what he asks for is wisdom. A discerning mind. Now, what is wisdom? Well, we go to about 3 o'clock and miss the game. So we'll try to summarize. But it's more than just knowledge. It's multifaceted like a diamond. Multifaceted. I'll give you six quick facets I've adapted from Tony Morita. One is that wisdom has a worship facet or dimension. It has a worship dimension. If you don't worship the one true God, you can't be wise. Period. You can be intelligent. You can win at trivial pursuit. You can have more degrees than Fahrenheit, but you are not wise. If you aren't a worshiper of God, you aren't wise. The wisest thing you can do is trust your life here and eternally to God. Secondly, it's got an insight dimension. It gives you insight into spiritual truth. Wisdom does this. Thirdly, it has a, gives discernment. A wise person can read a situation and know how they should react. Know what the right decision is. Fourth, there's a moral component, a moral dimension to wisdom. Throughout the Proverbs, we see that wisdom and purity go together. That a wise person has discretion. James writes that wisdom is tied to such virtues as purity and peace-loving. A wise person is also open to correction. To not be open, open to correction, the Bible calls you a fool. Fifth, there's a justice dimension. Proverbs 1.3 that Wendy read earlier said wisdom was for receiving wise instruction in righteousness, justice, and integrity. And then after speaking of the God who gives wisdom, Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 9, then you will understand righteousness, justice, and integrity. Every good path. And so doing justice is inherent to wisdom. And leaders are particularly praised in Proverbs for using wisdom to do justice. I mean, Proverbs 8, wisdom is personified as a lady. And she says, it is by me that kings reign and rulers enact just law. By me, princes lead and do nobles and righteous as do nobles and do and righteous judges. And at the end of Proverbs, the king's mother taught him this. Speak up. Judge righteously and defend the cause of the oppressed and needy. Proverbs 31.9. And we'll see an example of this in Solomon's life in a minute. So there's a justice dimension. And then sixth, finally, there's a skill dimension. Wisdom has a dimension of skill. And so in a nutshell, wisdom is the skill of godly living. That's what it is. Wisdom is the skill of godly living. And so it's not conforming to the pattern of this world, but it's being transformed by the renewing of our mind and conforming to the precept of God's word. Not conforming to the world, conforming to the word. And that's why Solomon, the wisest person who ever lived, 
later writes in his book of Proverbs to, above all things, acquire wisdom. And so number two this morning, as Solomon did, let us seek wisdom from our gracious God. Or to seek wisdom from our gracious, gracious God. And how do we do that? Well, for one, ask for it. Like Solomon did here. Like James tells us to in James chapter 1, verse 5. And secondly, study Scripture. You want to be wise? Go to the manual. This is wisdom. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 that the Scriptures are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And in his prayers for the churches he planted, Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 17, Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul prays for spiritual wisdom for the churches. And so wisdom is to be sought. We're to seek it out. And people go everywhere looking for wisdom. Oprah, Dr. Phil, Dear Abby, the fake news of your choice. Your liberal fake news, your conservative fake news. But go to God. Go to Scripture. For God makes the inexperienced wise, it says. And seek biblical community to grow in wisdom. For as Proverbs says, those who walk with the wise will become wise. But a companion of fools will suffer harm. But friends, ultimately wisdom is not found in a set of ideas. It's found in a person. And his name is Jesus. And as he talks about in describing himself, something greater than Solomon is here. That's Christ. And to walk away from Jesus is to walk away from wisdom, but to walk in Jesus is to walk in wisdom. And so that brings us to number three, walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. Second half of chapter three, and then all of chapter four, we'll read that later. I'm asking you, like, that's homework, read that. But it, it demonstrates two ways that we should walk in wisdom. He uses wisdom. These two different ways. Solomon uses wisdom to bless the powerless and to lead faithfully and skillfully. These are two ways he demonstrates how we should walk in wisdom. To bless the powerless and to lead faithfully and skillfully. And so first of all, the end of chapter 3 there, second half of chapter 3 there, he decides the dispute between two prostitutes. And well, obviously, prostitution is not something one to, to take lightly or make fun of, but to, to not go into. It's a sin. Have you ever paused to consider why people may go into that? Both in the days of Solomon as well as today, many people turn to that out of economic desperation. In the days of Solomon, women had no rights. It's Christianity that brought rights to women. In the days of Solomon, there were no rights for women. Not inherit anything. And so perhaps these are widows who are just trying to survive. 
But as you go home and as you read this, what I want you to see out of this is that Solomon sees beyond these ladies' occupation. And in particular, for one, he sees her as a mother. And so he values her as we should value anyone who's born in the image of God. That means anyone, because we're all made in the image of God. And we should not, like we learn some wisdom here from Solomon to not dismiss individuals who are in dark situations. We're all in dark situations. We were all in darkness until Christ brought us into light. And Jesus has rescued those of us who have trusted in him. He's redeemed us and he's redeemed us to redeem. He's left us here to rescue and redeem others, both spiritually and physically. From the unborn to the orphan. To those in foster care. Widows and the elderly, persons of disability and special needs, sex slaves and trafficked persons, the destitute, impoverished and starving, those struggling to survive because of dirty water, illegal immigrants, refugees, on and on and on and on we could go. But we've been redeemed to redeem. We've been loved to love. We've been served to serve. We've been blessed to bless and to walk in wisdom in these things. We have, we have ministries in our churches that touches every single one of these things. And then we have individuals within the church that go deeper into these things in certain areas. If you'd like more information about that, I'd be glad to help you with that. But dig in somewhere and walk in wisdom to bless the powerless. And then finally, chapter 4, we see this call to walk in wisdom in order to faithfully and skillfully lead others. You get this long list of officials and leaders that Solomon manages and delegates, and that takes wisdom. Okay? And not just wisdom to, like Jim Collins says, go from good to great, though there's some wisdom in that. In his books and in others. If you want a great book on wisdom in the workplace, what is it, Matt Parham? What's the name of it? Do you remember the name of it? What's Best Next by Matt Parman. It's one we read in the office last year probably. Great book on wisdom in the workplace. But beyond that, like the wisdom not to just take your business company from good to great, but wisdom to see your employees and your employers as people made in the image of God. As those worthy of respect. As people with families. And difficulties. Things that they face and that they're fighting. And that you've been given the responsibility to love and walk with and bless. And so as we've said so many times in this place. You don't work where you work on accident. God, You don't go to school where you go to school on accident. God has placed you in those spheres that you might reach those around you with the gospel. And since the wisest act one can do is repent of sin and put their faith in King Jesus, the wisest thing you can do is lead people towards that. That is a way to walk in wisdom. 
And so like St. Patrick. St. Patrick considered himself a nobody. Who told everybody. About an all cap somebody. Let us walk in wisdom. And be a bunch of nobodies. Telling everybody. About an all cap somebody. Jesus. The king of glory. And so, dear friends, take some lessons from the wisdom and folly of Solomon. Beware of your divided heart. Seek wisdom and then walk in it. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are divided. Help us. Open our eyes up to the truth of our divided hearts. Whatever it may be. Good things that have taken a place they should not hold and so they in some ways become bad things because they take the place that only you should hold in our hearts and father help us to pursue you in your word and not let the things of this world crowd out wisdom that you want to give and how you want to bless and lead let us be wise and not fools And seek you and your word. And seek your kingdom. And all these other things will be taken care of. Thank you God for your grace and your mercy in the midst of our nonsense. And how you are still a pitcher to pour out on us. Help us to see you rightly. As a heavenly loving father. Not an angry ogre. Forgive us when we see you wrongly. In Christ's name.